for listening to the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medical Association podcast. My name is Eric Fossack. I'm an active member of the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medical Association, and it's my privilege to introduce uh, two guests to this podcast to discuss evidence-based veterinary medicine. My first guest is Dr. Brennan McKenzie. Uh, he's a veterinarian at Adobe Animal Hospital in uh, California. I, where in California is it, Brennan? It's in Los Altos, which is just a little south of San Francisco. Los Altos. Uh, Dr. Brendan McKenzie has been a huge um, uh, proponent for evidence-based veterinary medicine. He's uh, spoken on the topic at a number of conferences um, and has been the past president of the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medical Association. Um, I strongly encourage and will have uh, definitely a link to his blog, SkeptVet, um, where he talks about evidence-based veterinary medicine in practice, um, tackling predominantly um, that and alternative medicine, I believe, correct? Yeah, it initially began uh, with a lot of focus on complementary and alternative medicine. I think it's broadened since then, but that, that still makes up a fair proportion of, uh, of the discussion there. Excellent. And also you're a contributor for the Science-Based Medicine blog, I believe, correct? That's right. Uh, that's one of the leading skeptical and evidence-based medicine blogs uh, on the human medical field, and, uh, and I have contributed a few articles relevant to, to veterinary subjects there. So ultimately, if you're a skeptic or if you want to find a skeptic, uh, Brennan's your man. Uh, he has definitely um, really contributed to the field of evidence-based medicine um, and just such a great player. I'm really pleased and excited that you're willing to speak on this topic, and I, I'm really grateful for you to be here. Um, thanks for being here. Well, thanks. That's very kind. Also, I have with me uh, Dr. Sharon Esposito. Uh, Sharon has been an uh, uh, instructor here at Bell Ray Institute of Animal Technology. Uh, she teaches our pre-cleans uh, in surgery. Of course, she's the surgeon that's doing the surgery and uh, definitely helps them out in terms of understanding uh, sterile technique. Um, in addition, she also helps us uh, on a number of other levels, of course, at this uh, veterinary technician training institution. Uh, Sharon also works at Smoky Hill Veterinary Hospital. Uh, where is that located? It's in Aurora, Colorado. Aurora, Colorado. Um, not too far from here at Bellray Institute of Animal uh, Technology. Uh, so the idea of this first podcast, of course, is really just to get folks familiar with what evidence-based medicine is. So uh, without further ado, Brennan, we kind of put you on the spot here, and we were hoping you could put something together in 10 minutes or less on evidence-based medicine. How does that feel? I think we can manage that. So evidence-based medicine means a lot of things to different people. Uh, it has aspects that address how research is conducted and how research is published and disseminated and organized and accessed and criticized. So, so there are lots of elements of it that apply to folks in primarily in academia and doing uh, clinical medical research. My interest in evidence-based medicine is essentially that of a clinician, a practitioner. I, I see patients on a daily basis, and I obviously want to provide the best care I can to them. And I think of evidence-based medicine as, as a set of tools and, and approaches that help me to do that. Um, evidence-based medicine by that name, is sort of an outgrowth of clinical epidemiology. And in the early 90s, a number of clinical epidemiologists began talking about how to integrate controlled external scientific research evidence into clinical practice. And as clinicians, we all rely on science to help inform our practice. We unfortunately tend to do so in a rather haphazard way. 
we have a base of knowledge about diseases, about the treatment options, diagnostic tests, those sorts of things. And most of the time, we don't know where exactly that knowledge came from. It may be things that we learned in medical school. It may be things that we, we've learned from other veterinarians who've mentored us or read in journals or heard from experts speaking at continuing education meetings. But we, we aren't always able to trace the source of our information and to assess its reliability. Um, evidence-based medicine is predicated on the idea that different kinds of evidence have different levels of reliability. Things that are based on, well, I tried it once and it seemed like it worked, are probably less reliable than things that are based on high-quality controlled clinical research. So evidence-based medicine is a way of, of acknowledging the different levels of, of bias or error inherent in different kinds of evidence and helping us to assess the knowledge base that we use to make clinical decisions. So the classic definition of evidence-based medicine came from David Sackett, who's one of the founding figures in the movement, and, and he talked about it uh, in terms of integrating research evidence with clinical experience, with the, the context of a, any particular patient's needs. And he used a few words in his definition that I always go back to. He said that it is the conscientious and explicit use of scientific research evidence in helping to make decisions about patients. And I think those are key words. Conscientious implies we have to think about it and, and do it consistently in a regular systematized way, which I think is a little different from the somewhat haphazard use of science and background knowledge that most of us were trained uh, in, uh, in order to, to support our clinical decisions. It's also explicit. It's accepted, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little while, that, that one of the big problems with practicing evidence-based medicine in the veterinary field is the lack of a lot of high-quality research evidence. So sometimes we're going to run into a situation where there isn't research evidence available for us to use. However, that doesn't make evidence-based medicine not useful to us because one of the key features of the approach is simply acknowledging and being explicit with ourselves and with our clients about the evidence that we're using to support our recommendations. So the idea of, of explicitness is that we are aware of where the information we're using to make our decisions comes from and what its limitations are. And I think that helps us to avoid getting stuck in traps, in, in habits or practices that we follow simply because we've always done it that way or because someone we respect has has taught us to do it that way. Um, it makes us more flexible, more able to change our practices as the research evidence grows and changes, uh, and that's one of the beauties of it. Another feature of evidence-based medicine, um, it, it looked at from kind of a larger perspective, uh, comes from the definition in the Handbook of Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine. This is uh, the only textbook that so far exists for veterinarians interested in evidence-based medicine. It was put together by um, Peter Cockroft and Mark Holmes over in the UK. And their addition to the classic definitions of evidence-based medicine was it is really about having confidence in the scientific method to help us distinguish what's true from what's false and what we know from what we don't know. So all evidence-based medicine is in the larger sense is just the application of science and scientific methodology to clinical medical decision-making. And there are a lot of details involved in how you do that, which we can talk about. But in a basic sense, all it is is formalizing and making a little more explicit something which I think most clinicians try to do anyway. When I talk to veterinarians about evidence-based medicine, 
I like to talk about what specifically does it do for us? What, what's the value for me as a clinician? Um, and, and the three main things that, that I emphasize are it is a method for helping to prevent and correct the kinds of errors that all human beings inherently make in assessing a situation, in judging what the clinical problem is, in deciding what therapy is going to be most appropriate, in evaluating whether that therapy is effective or not. All of the sorts of errors that are built into our brains and how we as individuals make observations and judgments uh, are pretty well established. Clinical uh, psychology, cognitive psychology is a domain that has spent a lot of energy studying how human beings think and make decisions and where that goes wrong. And the scientific method is a set of techniques for helping us to, to mitigate those errors. So what I as a clinician need from evidence-based medicine is strategies or techniques that help me to reduce the mistakes that I'm likely to make. The end goal of that, of course, is to improve patient care. That's what we all really want. And, and we can chat a little bit about the evidence. I think there is a little bit of evidence to show that employing this overarching set of ideas or approaches that we call evidence-based medicine does actually have tangible and measurable effects on patient care. Uh, there are examples, for for example, of, of human hospitals where evidence-based medicine practices are introduced and measures like mortality rate or hospital stay or, or other kinds of, of important clinically relevant outcomes for patients improve. So I think there is some evidence that doing this not only helps us to, to think more systematically and more consistently about the decisions we make, but it actually makes our patients do better, which is what we're all interested in. And then the last thing, which is a little less uh, perhaps clearly scientific or clinical, but which I think is important, is I think there's an ethical dimension to evidence-based medicine. Um, we give our clients information uh, in order that they make, can make choices about the recommendations that we offer. Do they want to do that test? Do they want to do that therapy? What would they like to have happen? And we all acknowledge that the client is the one in charge of, of making those choices, and our job is to give them the information they need to do so. And I think a key part of that information is how much uncertainty is there about the recommendations that we're making. Is there a difference between a recommendation that I make based only on my clinical experience and a recommendation that I make based on the experience of an of a acknowledged expert in the field or based on a large body of clinical research evidence. And I think there are differences in the amount of uncertainty in those different kinds of recommendations. And those have, I think, an impact on the decisions that our clients are going to make about what care they want for their pets. Um, there have been a couple of surveys asking pet owners what they want from the communication uh, from their veterinarian. And a couple of interesting things came out of those surveys. One is that they're much less disturbed by expressions of uncertainty. If, if their veterinarian says something like, I'm not sure, I have to go look that up, or, well, nobody really knows, that doesn't destroy the client's confidence in, in our ability or in our recommendations. And I think that might be comforting to veterinarians if we're trying to suggest that maybe as part of taking on evidence-based practices, we'd be a little more direct and explicit about the evidence and the uncertainty. Another thing that came out of a survey of clients who were being treated at a tertiary oncology center, so the absolute top-level care that you can get in veterinary medicine, when asked what was the most important thing to them about the communication from their veterinarian is that that communication be truthful. And I think that an important part of being truthful and, and open and honest with our clients is 
discussing the evidence and the uncertainty. So in addition to helping us to do a better job in, in making decisions in the clinic, helping our, our patients to have better outcomes, I think evidence-based medicine helps us to meet an ethical obligation we have to give truly informed consent to our clients. There's obviously a lot more to it. Hopefully we can get into some of the details, but that's my quickie introduction. That's terrific, Brendan. Thank you so much for that. Um, definitely a lot of interesting points to kind of uh, come back to here. But, you know, I have to admit, you know, this this sounds perfect. Like, I don't understand why anybody wouldn't want to do it. And I have to be honest with you, science, if it's taught me anything else, you know, it tells me I don't need to stick my finger in an electric outlet to know I'm going to get shocked. I don't have to know that it's going to hurt if I jump off of a high building. And I also know that there's no such thing as a perfect solution. So what are what are currently some, uh, in from your perspective, or actually, I think I'm going to ask you, Sharon, what do you think are some limitations in terms of what you're hearing um, Brendan describe with evidence-based medicine and based on, you know, Sackett's literature? Well, Brennan, one of the things you hit upon was in private practice is you have a client, and the client is the one who ultimately is going to make the decision as to what you're allowed to do to that animal and how you're allowed to treat that animal. And I find that to be a really huge block sometimes, whether they either don't, they can't afford it, or they they don't like your answer, or, um, you know, just something as simple as heartworm preventative and whether or not their animal needs to be in heartworm preventative. So I see that as a big stumbling block. I agree. I mean, I think that, that there is the perfect world in which we can identify exactly what the right thing to do is under any circumstance uh, through research and then implement that because we all have the skills and the resources and the communication ability and, and consent from our clients to do so. Of course, that's not the world most of us live in or ever will. Um, so I do think that, that there is a, a perfect implementation of evidence-based medicine that's never going to happen. Um, however, I find that, that clients, particularly you know, with time and exposure to this method and, and with the building of a relationship, appreciate straightforward, honest discussions about what we know and what we don't know. And I think sometimes they're more likely to accept recommendations when they understand uh, that there's there's some good solid reason that, to suggest that this particular intervention that I want them to do is the best thing for them. If they can't because of financial limitations or other reasons, then the outcome is not going to be as good as it could be. But I've done my job in in giving them the advice and the recommendations that they're you know paying me for. Right, I agree. I mean, you know, you're just not a salesperson, and that's kind of uh, what I think the client perceives us at sometimes. But if you can be honest with them and, you know, and not try to sell them things they don't need, for example, or something like that, um, then they're more likely to, to believe you and follow your recommendations. Absolutely. And, and one great thing about, about practicing in this way is that I can often resist the temptation to do something because the client or I want to do something when the evidence suggests that not doing something might be the best choice. That's one of the hardest things, I think, for all of us is to, to not offer things when there isn't something clearly appropriate to offer. And, uh, and I was surprised at how positively clients received that when I started making more of an effort to do that. You know, you touched on two really, um, or this touches on really important thing. And, and also in, when you were talking about evidence-based medicine, I thought you really touched on an important topic. Um, and that's just the culture of, you know, like everybody looks at the veterinarian and a lot of times, you, especially from the veterinarian's perspective, they've been trained to think, you know, I have to give them the answers. And what I really appreciate is where you said, you know, we have to change that culture to saying, I don't know, or let me look, you know, like, let me see. And 
the, the overall reception of this by the clients has actually, based on the surveys you mentioned, um, has actually not affected the veterinarian's reputation, which I think is terrific. Um, do you think that's a hard thing for a lot of veterinarians to get over, though, in terms of, um, uh, you know, saying, I don't know, um, and, you know, maybe disappointing the client's expectations? What, what do you guys think about that? I would say absolutely. Uh, one of the, the most common responses that I get when I talk about uh, evidence-based medicine from veterinarians is, well, I, I try to go to the literature to help make decisions, and I find something you know, that suggests that nobody really knows or that there isn't a right answer, and that's demoralizing, and then I'm not sure what to do. And, and there's almost the implication that, that evidence-based medicine is about simply not doing anything unless there is high-quality, randomized clinical trial evidence to support doing so. And, and that really isn't the case. There's no need to remove personal clinical judgment from this. Um, it's simply about being clear with ourselves and with our clients about the level of evidence. I will also say that, that your comfort with uncertainty may change with both your experience and practice. I'm certainly a lot more comfortable admitting that I don't know than I was as a brand new vet who felt like I had to be omniscient and, and confident at all times. Um, I also think that as the culture changes, as we train veterinarians, um, then this may change. One of my most interesting experiences was as a preceptor for veterinary students who were doing uh, clinical rotations in general practice uh, at my hospital. And one of the things that the older veterinarians always like about students coming is they go to the students and they say, what are they, in, in some vague sense, the experts at the veterinary university, telling you to do about disease X or, or problem Y? And the last student I had said, well, they're not telling us what to do about anything. They're giving us a set of tools for for identifying what information we need, going and getting that information, and then making a decision. So I do think that in some ways, in some places, there's a little bit of a shift. And the students who've been exposed to that seem, I think, a little less disturbed by uncertainty uh, than, than my cohort was. You know, that's a really interesting um, aspect is, is, you know, being able to go, you know, look at this, have this uncertainty and, and not really train people specifically on what to do with this disease. This is a treatment. And I believe you, uh, you're the preceptor for Western, right? Uh, That's right. Western University of Health Sciences Veterinary College. I see. I, I train students in my practice from there. Yeah. And that, that's a fairly unique school, right? Because they're, they're based on the, um, I believe, a problem-based learning model, right? Where, where the instructors kind of give them a problem to solve on their own or they have to u utilize resources that they're provided. Um, at least that was the impression I was under, problem-based uh, curriculum. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of experimentation there with curriculum. Um, it, it's most known for not having a, a veterinary hospital of its own, so all of the clinical training of students is done in private practices, predominantly specialty practices, but they do have a general practice rotation as well. And, and for me, I think that's a wonderful opportunity since many students will go into general practice. And I focus in that rotation not so much on teaching the content knowledge, which, which they're going to get from people who have a, a narrower but deeper knowledge base in their specialty area, but focusing on exactly these things, the pragmatic use of knowledge to make decisions in real time in the real world, um, which is, I think, something that a lot of veterinary students don't get when they're trained at a tertiary care facility uh, where they don't do a lot of general practice reasoning. 
You know, before before we move on to a different aspect, uh, you know, I just have another question that kind of comes to my mind or, or that I'm curious about. It, you know, on the client side of things, when you're presenting this information and basing, you know, based on evidence, how do you present the evidence? Like, do you just whip out the articles in front of a client and say, well, this article says this? Or do you kind of do a summation to them and you say, this is just based on really a solid structure of, of evidence that we've seen that this works in this case? How, how do you present the evidence to a client that you that you have and, and how do you both do it how, how do you present your information well a lot of people are concerned that that relying more intensively and explicitly on science takes some of the art out of medicine but i would say that one of the the greatest elements of art is is the communication aspect and so i have to obviously tailor my presentation to uh, the interests level and the and the background of the client that i'm talking to so there are absolutely some clients where i will say you know here's what i think is best for your dog and we're not going to go into great detail about why i do that because um that's disturbing to their thought process and on the other end i have people that i routinely print out systematic reviews or other kinds of review articles for so that they can be absolutely certain if they're the sort of client who will spend a lot of time on the internet trying to find answers and, and questions about the condition that you're dealing with, and, and I'd like them to have reliable resources. Um, in general, what I start by doing is saying, um, having looked at all the evidence that's available, because I, I want to be very clear with the client that I've done that work. That's part of what I think they're paying me for, is my expertise and the background work I've done to ensure that the recommendations I make have a, a foundation that I can rely on. And then I say, having done that research, um, here are your options, here, here is what we know about your options, and if, if there's a clear right or wrong answer, I can say to them, you know, the evidence is very clear that this is the best uh, option for you. And if there's not, I can say, you know, we're going to have to rely on, on less solid foundations. I have done this, and I've done that, and some people like this, and some people like that, but honestly, the evidence isn't clear as to what the right thing is to do. Um, and, and so I, I try to put it in that context, and it's only certain clients who really want more detail than that. Um, it's mostly about a matter of making sure they understand that I've done the work and that the foundation is more or less solid depending on where the evidence I'm using comes from. And I agree completely. I love to send clients home with, with handouts and information. And on the flip side of that is you get the clients that walk in with their information that they have uh, printed off of uh, Google. So then you have to kind of sift through and try to guide them as to what they're reading and what they should be reading or not. That's, yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. So different clients take different oh, absolutely. approaches. Yes. Huh. Uh, all interesting aspects of the field. Now, here's the thing that, um, you know, and I'm, I'm falling back a little bit on literature. Um, you know, I think, um, and, you know, tell me if you if you don't agree, but, you know, I imagine the client, as, as Brennan mentioned, is extremely grateful that you've gone that extra mile, that you've shown that extra amount of concern for Fluffy's condition and uh, that you're willing to treat it. Um, now, the, the big question here is time and resources. How do you find the time to do this? And I know for a fact Brennan actually doesn't sleep. I, I don't know if you knew that, Sharon, but he doesn't. So he has the time to do that. But how how, how do people, uh, or, or not people, but how do veterinarians, um, how are they going to, 
be able to do this for every client when you're talking about what, what's your average appointment time, uh, Sharon? Uh, we have 30-minute appointments. Um, and, yeah, it's next to impossible. You have to run out, find a computer, print something off, run back, hand it to them. Typically, I would find doing all of the my research after hours and then calling the client the next day with information if it was a complicated case or mailing them things in the mail sometimes. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Brennan? How do you deal with it? I agree. I mean, I'm fortunate to have 30-minute appointments, which helps quite a bit. Um, I would say that what we mostly do anyway is is present the knowledge that we have at the moment to the client and then um, often go off and, and look for additional information if, if we need it for our own decision-making. I would say the nice thing about going through the evidence-based medicine process is that you certainly do not generate a formal research literature research question for every problem that every client has and then go and, and look at PubMed for every problem. What you do is take the most common questions that you get first and establish uh, your evidence-based answer to that and, and pull together whatever resources you have. So my first foray into evidence-based medicine was writing a narrative review article on the risks and benefits of neutering because the most common question I get from clients is when and if I should neuter my dog or cat. So I spent several weeks building up a large base of evidence and filtering through it. But now I have that as a resource that I use this relatively limited time use to, to go back and pull that out or to take what I've learned from that and convey it to clients. And if you do that consistently and on a regular basis, you end up with a base of knowledge that looks a lot like the base you had before, but you know where it came from and you know what the, the uncertainties are. The other thing that I try to do with the blog is to make available to other people the effort that I've put in to do this. I, I think one of the key things that I talk to practitioners about with evidence-based medicine is that you don't have to be just a consumer of information. You can be a producer of information, perhaps not original clinical trial research, for example, but it's easy to find tools to help you do a critical appraisal, for example, of a particular article, and then post that somewhere for other people to use. So when a client comes in and asks about this question, that's freely available somewhere, or to do a critically appraised topic review of a very specific question. You know, is glucosamine useful for arthritis? I wanted to answer that question, so I did the research. I wrote a little article for JAVMA, and now I have that, and it's available on the web for anyone else, and they don't have to necessarily replicate that. So one way that we can use evidence-based medicine to make our, our lives easier and to save time is leveraging the efforts that we're all putting in individually by you know, contributing that information out in some public way. And hopefully the EBVMA can, can be an instrument for facilitating that. I've always also been a big proponent for utilizing, you know, but this would take training on the nurse's end too. But I think, you know, for evidence-based medicine, to really be practiced, it has to be practiced by the team. Um, I always felt like the nurse, you know, when you're in the room, um, if there's anything particular you wanted, looked it up. You know, it'd be awesome if there, would, if a nurse could have that capacity to find, you know, go to reliable sources like PubMed or VetMed Resource or something like that. Find some relevant articles, even maybe do an initial, you know, uh, quality examination. Say this one's a you know, control trial as opposed to this one being a case study and present the veterinarian with that information. That's, that's something I'd love to see nurses doing and being involved with in, in the process in general. Yeah, when we get to have 60-minute appointments. <laughs> well, the other thing that I mentioned to people, and this is a bit of a pipe dream, uh, but uh, Stuart Turner, who's the current EBVMA president, is a bioinformaticist, and he's the sort of person that I, I, I try to hope will, will make this a reality. Um, there are tools available 
to make this kind of work much easier. The the last time I was at my regular doctor visit, I, I, I was offered a supplement and I said something about, you know, well, what's the evidence to suggest that? And and she rotated a little stool and typed in a couple of things and there were the articles printed out, you know, in the exam room right next to me and it took less than 30 seconds. There's a, a decision support tool or information technology that can facilitate that. It's not certainly by any stretch of the imagination available for veterinarians yet, but it exists. And there may be ways to borrow, as we so often do from human medicine, some of that technology. So I think the idea is that we have to make this a a time-efficient and friendly, pragmatic process, or no one will do it. And uh, and there are ways to do that, and leveraging uh, nursing staff is absolutely one of the best ones. I agree completely. That's terrific. Um, and I think, you know, I think definitely in the next podcast, probably what we should probably look at is uh, what resources there are right now available. When you were talking about, uh, you know, when you were talking to a doctor about um, the supplement uh, and they printed the articles, this is all part of what they refer to as informatics, right? Right. Informatics is using information technology to uh, to facilitate clinical decision-making, medical research, all aspects of healthcare. Terrific. And I think this is a wonderful starting point, um, hopefully, for those of the, those folks listening. Um, you know, evidence-based veterinary medicine, I think one of the coolest things that, that you mentioned earlier, Brennan, is that I don't think this is something, um, you know, you're not necessarily going to publish this giant research paper on. And I wonder, you know, if some of the intimidation that occurs from evidence-based veterinary medicine is the amount of work that looks like it might take. Is it something that maybe we can do just a little bit of um, as we go and develop our technique, like maybe just do a PubMed search um, before, you know, like if you know what case you're going to have the next day, do a quick PubMed search, incorporate that information into what you're going to do the next day. Is that is that something that's doable or is it something you have to go all, all in, like, you know, uh, incorporate an entire system and do it right from beginning to end? Or is it something you can do a little bit of and just kind of improve as you go? Well, I, I think evidence-based medicine is a little bit like exercise. It's pretty much understood that more is better, but some is better than none. So I think that ideally, yes, there are definitely pragmatic, simple things that, that practitioners can do. One of the roles for groups like the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine Association, um, there's a fantastic group called the Center for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine at the University of Nottingham. The uh, Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons also has some efforts in this line, is to make resources available that that do a lot of the research uh, searching and critical appraisal and synthesis for veterinarians. So things like systematic reviews, clinical practice guidelines, critically appraised topic reviews, these are all short, efficient ways for um, for veterinarians to get information that they can already know the reliability of in advance without having to do a lot of the work themselves. So that's one way in, I think, is is to build it for people to use as a resource. And then perhaps moving forward, training people to do more of that sort of work for themselves to answer more specific questions that they have that perhaps other people haven't provided answers for yet. Well, I think this is a great starting point, and I really have to thank you, Brennan, for coming in and uh, giving that ten minutes, uh, ten minutes or less, on a fairly complex topic. And you did you did it remarkably. Um, and I definitely thank Sharon Esposito for coming in. Dr. Sharon Esposito um, took time out of uh, both of these guys both took time out of their day um, to kind of inform us more about this. And I hope all of us, um, you know, um, 
can start looking maybe for more evidence every time we do anything in practice. Um, one of my favorite things that um, uh, my coworker and my wife here, uh, Elizabeth, says that Sh Dr. Sharon Esposito says, is that um, you know it's still the practice of medicine. They call it the practice of medicine for a reason, and I think this is just one more step that helps make this more uh, more of a science. You know, more more of something that we can feel more confidence about the decisions we make. Um, as we go through the day of, of practice. So again, thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate uh, you coming in. And anything you guys want to mention about it, uh, Brennan or Sharon? Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I think it's great to, uh, to I think it would be great in the future to get uh, input from veterinarians in practice and get questions maybe through uh, through the BVMA for us to answer. I think, uh, as you mentioned, it's a huge topic. There's a lot to talk about, and it's not as scary, intimidating as it seems sometimes. So uh, I think this is a great start. Thanks for, for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you, Brennan. It was great to be able to talk with you. And Eric, thanks for setting this up. It was great. Great. Well, until next time. Hopefully, if there is a next time on this podcast, uh, we'll talk to you then. Thank you so much, guys, and have a great day. This ends the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medical Association's first podcast. Please join us for our second podcast, where we talk a little bit more about the techniques in evidence-based veterinary medicine. This is Eric Fosak. Thank you again for listening, and please follow us on the next podcast. Good day.